Jesus. All right, you ready to study the scripture? All right, get your Bibles out, and we're going to turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, as you know, we've been in this series called Resurrection Stories, and, and uh, it is an incredible series for me, and I hope it has been for you. I believe that the, that the enemy of our souls, Satan himself and all his minions, are trying to get us to not believe these ideas. They're try- I mean, I see it all around our church community right now. He's trying to bust up families, and he's trying to convince people that they're nothing and that they're less than. He's trying to push people back. He's trying to cloud their minds with darkness. It is everywhere, and I think it has to do with this particular series and this kind of teaching and training about who we are in Jesus, about how resurrection life takes over our lives. He doesn't want that information out, and so I feel the press, and I want you to commit to really digging in to prayer, to your life with Christ, to coming and and being part of this series because I think it is powerful. And in three or four weeks here, I think about four weeks now, at the end of May, we're going to do what's called a resurrection retreat, May 29 and 30. It's a Friday and Saturday, Friday night and Saturday. And it is not just for people who are really in trouble. It is for all of us who need to break through in our lives and to break free of the issues of our past and to see us living in resurrection life and power. So I want you to put that on your schedule and as we head towards that. And let's, let's do something really amazing in our city. Let's be the people that God has called us to be. That's what I want us to do, all right? So um, last week, we talked about five levels of change. We were, we, were, we were talking about how people change, how they get transformed. And we, we talked about environments and how people try to change themselves by changing their environments, and, and I, I, I need my life to change so they get a new job, and they, need, they need their lives to change so they, they move to a new city, or they, or they choose a new church, or, or they, they choose a new spouse. Here's the problem. Everywhere you go, you take you with you. Yeah. Everywhere you, I know, it's profound. It's deep. Just stay with me. <laughs> Everywhere you go, there you are. And so you bring your problems with you. And so then the second level of change is behaviors, people trying to behave their way to a certain success, and they try to force themselves into certain behaviors, and nor is this more apparent than the diet industry. And the diet industry is a multi-billion dollar industry because people can't change their behaviors. It's so hard. It's so difficult. And they need help, but, but environments and behaviors are very low-level ways of changing your life. The next level would be capabilities. These are skills that we develop in order to to be better. And this produces two results. The pressure gets ratcheted up because you try to increase your skill level, your capability, and as you try to get better at stuff, the pressure mounts because you realize these are just skills that you're using on the outside, but the inside hasn't changed. The pressure mounts, and suddenly when you fail, you just feel like such a loser because you can't develop this skill. You can't make it happen. <clears throat> or worse, what happens is you do develop the skill, you become really good at it, and then you become full of yourself. And that keeps you from the very solution of change from the inside out. The fourth level would be really significant. It's a, it's a major leap 
It's a, it's a huge leap in freedom because it deals with what you believe. And last week we talked about the difference between our thoughts and our beliefs. And our thoughts exist in our mind and our beliefs exist in our heart. And it's not until you get to a fundamental core belief that your life begins to really change. And what you believe about who you are is really significant. But that leads us to the fifth final level and really the most profound level of change the one that leads them all, right? There's four levels that you can change, four levels that you can change and one that you cannot because you can't change your own identity. Only God can do that. Four levels you can change, but one you cannot. And the fifth is identity. And that question is so profound. Who are you? Who are you? Who do you think you are? Who have you been told that you are? What have you been told all your life? What script have you received in this life that's playing out in front of you? What script did you receive from your mom or your dad about who you are? What script did you receive that you're reading through and now believing that you are, that a boss told you you are, or a child, or another um, teacher told you you are as a child? I'll never forget Mrs. Esser in my first grade class. Mrs. Esser, she was a towering woman with a deep voice, scared all the children. She wore some horrible clothing. I mean, it was the 70s, so almost all clothing was horrible. But I just remember the polyester pants, and you know, because that's your eye level. And, and I was doing this project, and... and <laughs> it's, it's true. I was doing this project, and I was trying to stuff flowers and... and, and, and in a, in a, like a, a clay thing that I had formed and all the kids are doing it and I'm putting it on a, on a piece of wood and it's for our moms. I think we we're making it for Mother's Day and we're trying to get the flowers in. I can't get the flowers in. I'm trying my best to make it all work and everybody else is done and I'm still going. And she just came over and she was so mad. She said, what's wrong with you? Just put it in there. Just stick it, just stick it right in there. And she did it for me. I was like, yeah. I'm a first grader. What's wrong with me? Something's wrong with me. (laughs) And that's what's wrong with me. (laughs) My first grade teacher. (laughs) No, she was capitalizing on what, what, she was frustrated. She was having a bad day. I've forgiven her since, two or three times. And it's, it it was my perfectionistic tendencies causing me to go slow. And so it reinforced something's wrong. And that script has, I've been been working to erase that script all my life. Now listen, all of us have been given something like that. And it defines who we are. And we 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 have to not look to others. We have to look to God, to what he says about who we are. Next to the knowledge of God, the next important, the most important thing is knowledge about who you are. And so I want you to look at Luke chapter 7 because today we're going to look at a story that's not about a a negative thing that was happening and Jesus changed it, but a positive interaction with Jesus that led to some resurrection life that happened in another person. So check this out. This is called the faithlessness of the centurion. Verse 1, well, let's pray. Father, let the reading of your word come alive to us. As we read it, would you speak to us and would you give us power to obey, courage to do what you say, and and wisdom to respond to you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Verse one says, when Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And there a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. And the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our own synagogue. So Jesus went with them. So the setting of the story, Luke is telling a story here, and he says there's a centurion, probably a a, a middle-grade centurion over a few soldiers in Capernaum. Capernaum would be an outpost. Uh, There would be Jewish people there. Most of the time, centurions would have resented uh, being in a place like that, and and they would have despised the people that they're overseeing, and and so um, this centurion was not like that. He he actually there'd been a revelation of some kind of who God is and who God's people are, and he loved them, and even went so far as to build the synagogue. So he had some wealth, and he used it to serve people. There was some amount of revelation going on in this man, even though he was a Gentile. He was not included necessarily, but he, he believed. And so we'll see how that moves him and what that moves him to do. Continuing in verse 6, so Jesus went with them and he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Watch this. But say the word. Everybody say, say the word. Say the word. Say the word. And my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority. With soldiers under me, I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Imagine the Son of God amazed. There's only a few things that amaze the Son of God, and faith is one of them. He was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd Following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in Israel. Now you think about that statement, all right? Here's the Jewish people, God's people, and Jesus says, I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. It's a little bit of a, of a slam because something is happening here and Jesus is recognizing it. Verse 10, then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So Jesus heals him. He heals the servant. Luke is including the story in his writings here as a way of highlighting something else. The healing isn't necessarily the thing that's being highlighted. What is being highlighted is the faith of the centurion. And I want you to notice two things. Number one, he had humility. He had a certain amount of humility. First of all, some Jewish leaders come to Jesus and want this man's servant to be healed. But the centurion hears about it and sends someone to say to Jesus, you don't need to come. I know how this works. You don't need to come and and sit with me because I understand how authority works. 
So he's a man under authority, and he says, if you'll just say it, then it will happen. Something had happened to this man where he believed that Jesus was somehow God's representative presence on the earth. And he said, he said something so profound that it amazed Jesus. And as, as Jesus was sort of reacting to it, the healing that Jesus had for this servant burst onto the scene. But, but Luke is telling a story about humility and authority. And I want to highlight for you that what is required in faith is a humility to understand that you don't know it all, nor do you understand it all, nor can you accomplish it all. There's a humility that is required for faith, and there is an authority that is required for faith. And that authority is believing that Jesus, what he says, is true. What he says happens. There is an authority that we must submit to, and submitting to authority requires humility. Now listen, we don't love authority that much in our day and time, in our culture, right? We have, we have a lot of structures, author, authoritarian structures, but we don't like the tight ones, right? The really, the really tight authority structures, they're, they're difficult for people to navigate. We, 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 don't, we don't really um, understand them as a culture, the military, the U.S. military is a very tightly structured organization and has a, a very strict authority levels. And they have to because it's dangerous. If you don't follow directions, you'll get killed. If you look at companies that handle difficult, uh, per, uh, uh, dangerous products or chemicals, there is a very strict authority structure of who can be exposed to what chemicals and when, and, and there's, there's all these lines of authority, and it's very strict. And, and, but, but outside of that, we, we don't really like authority figures telling us what to do directly. But Jesus is saying, in order to have the kind of faith that moves mountains, the kind of faith that heals people, the kind of faith that he wants for us, we must humble ourselves and yield to his authority in our lives. And this is a big deal because the, the centurion, he is saying, I know who I am and I know who you are. There it is. That's the phrase that all of us have to leave today with. I know who Jesus is and I know who I am because those are interrelated. Those are related, those are integrated into the life of a Christian. The question of what is really true about God and what is true about you, these are fundamental questions. And identity is this blueprint, right, that God has for you and for me, our identity of an all-powerful, imaginative God who desires to put his nature and his identity in us. If we can see, now, look, now listen, if we can see what's in God's heart, when we're created, then we can truly be free. If you can see what's in God's heart when you were created, you can really be free. So what is true about Christ for the Christian is now true about you and me. For the one who believes in Jesus himself, the one, that what's true about him is now true about us. That we have what he has. That we are who he says we are. 
that we are children of God. We have a heavenly Father who loves us, who provides for us. We have strength. We have courage. We have wisdom. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the words of, of God himself in the Bible. We have the, the work of his, all his ministering spirits and angels that, that, that minister to us and minister to others. We have everything that Jesus has. And I think this, this man, we can truly say that what he did didn't determine who he was. He, there was, a, there was a, a, a shift in his thinking. Who he was determines what he's going to do. He understood who he was, so he said, Jesus, you just need to say it, and I get it, and I'll take it. Jesus, if you say it, I'll receive it. That's what God wants for us. So who are you? Here's how Paul said it. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, not, not in death, but in the body. Like I have a body and I'm living, I live by what? What does it say in your notes? I live by the faith. Take your pen and, and circle that. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the problem with change is that we don't have faith in the right place. We start to deal with behaviors as a way of changing. Our focus begins to be on behaviors instead of our focus being on Jesus. Our faith starts projecting onto, now listen to me, are you with me? Are you with me? Are you with me? I don't believe you. Our faith begins to be projected to an outcome, a behavior, a desire, instead of on Jesus himself. To be secure in your identity and who God made you to be, you have to, you have to allow him to define this. Because here's the problem. Because our sins are far worse than just bad behaving people. Sin is far worse than just than bad behaving people. Right? We focus on our behaviors as a way to holiness. It doesn't work. If you focus on your behaviors as a way to get to holiness, you will, you will find yourself always wrestling with your thoughts, with your feelings, with your behaviors, and we wrestle against ourselves because we're, we're fighting our own desires and our own, our, our, our own attitudes and our own feelings. And the crisis comes when we focus on our behaviors to try to deal with sin. All right, listen to me. It's like, it's like having cancer and thinking that taking Tylenol will fix it. Jesus has something entirely different than you trying to focus your attention on your behaviors. He wants you to focus attention on him. Sin, what is sin? Sin is the absence of God, right? Sin is the absence of God in the human soul. And so what is presence, what is present in the human soul if God is absent? Death. Death. So the absence of God is death, but the presence of God is life. What's the what's the thing we've been talking about here? The freedom is not just the absence of something, but the presence of someone. Life always conquers death. This is what Jesus came for. Resurrection life takes over death. And so we're not committing to try harder as a Christian, right? We're not committing to try harder in exchange for Jesus paying for our sins. That's what a lot of people do. Jesus paid for our sins, so I really, oh, I really need to give my life to him. You know, he deserves it. That cross thing, that was really hard. (laughs) 
It's, it's some kind of weird martyrdom that doesn't work. It's religion instead of relationship. It's, it's, it's ritualistic. It doesn't, it doesn't work because it doesn't touch you on the inside. Salvation eradicates sin and death and fills us with life. It's an inside-out job. Salvation starts way down deep on the inside with what you believe about who Jesus is, and it starts to change you and work its way out. Salvation is exchanging my old nature for a new one. It's a new creation, not a new expectation to live under. It's a new creation that's happening in us, not a new expectation of ourselves, a new expectation from God. And so what happens at salvation is we begin to adjust our beliefs to what has really happened to us. What does the scripture say? The righteous will live by faith. Oh, I don't, I don't behave like I should all the time. Well, that's why you have Jesus, because he's working his way through the issues of your heart. He's going deeper and deeper into who you are. So, so when, when we believe this, it seems, like it, it seems like it should work better than it does. <laughs> why is it so hard still? Why is it so difficult? Well, because there's some really hard battlegrounds and some difficult battles you've got to fight. And there's three, I just want to highlight them. One is demonic influence, demonic oppression. There's a spiritual realm, and it happens, it's all around us. There's a spiritual world. People who don't focus on the spiritual world or dismiss it, they are influenced by it nonetheless. And here's how demonic oppression works. Here's how demonic influence works, all right? It's kind of like, I don't know if you remember, you know, songs that you really know. Like my wife, she loves 80s music. I don't know what it is. She lives for 80s weekend on the radio. I don't know. And then, and then we got the kids in the car and we're listening to it. And then a song comes in. You're like, this is a great song. And then you listen to the words. You're like, yeah, turn, turn the channel. Change the station. Did we really, I mean, we've, her and I have looked at each other many times like, did we really listen to that? That's crazy. It's the progressive work of Christ in us. You guys are a little slow this morning. Anyway. So, so, so you know, you know how you know, you have a song and you know the song so well, and you love singing the song. All you have to hear is the first line. And you're like, yeah, like, I mean, who doesn't love living on a prayer? <laughs> living on a prayer by Bon Jovi, exactly. My wife, Bon Jovi. <laughs> wow, living on a prayer. Take my hand, you make it, I promise. <laughs> she taught our kids, I'm, you'll make it, I promise. And because she didn't want them to say, you'll make it, I swear. You can't change the words like that. You can't change the words like that. So you know the song, you know the words. Here's how the devil works, all right? The devil works often with our thoughts. Spiritual realm, pushing ideas all around us. That's why prayer changes an atmosphere. Prayer, hey, look at me. Prayer stimulates the Holy Spirit's activity around you and around a person. That's why, that's why prayer is so powerful. It taps into what God, what's possible with God, not, not just about us. But the devil tries to sow things into our thoughts 
And there's, there are thoughts that our culture has that are dominant, right? Thoughts like, you're never going to make it. You're going to fail. It's never going to work out. Oh, you're not going to have enough. These are all dominant thoughts of our culture because everybody's full of greed. and they're just, that's, Those are the dominant ideas of our culture being said to us over and over again. And it happens. And so all he has to do, he really doesn't have much power. He just has to sing the first line of the song. And you know the song so well that you just sing it. He uses our past, our brokenness, our history. He, he kind of sees where we've been. We know where we've been. We know this song so well. All he has to do is sing the first line, and we're off and running, singing the whole song ourselves. What you have to do is change the station, and you have to believe that God has done something in your life and changes it. Now, demonic oppression gains strength as we agree with it and loses strength when we resist. So James 4, 7 through 8 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Submit, surrender. By the way, that's where all the work is. It's not work on behavior. It's just working on submitting everything to Jesus. It's allowing him to have permission and then resisting the devil. The second and third thing is the world. The world is full of structures and systems, violating structures, broken systems that exist in our world and people, people get tyrannized, terrorized. I mean, it, it's, it's overwhelming sometimes. The family was designed as a, a, a mechanism of blessing, but it's turned into our culture and a mechanism of cursing of brokenness. The world, it's all around us. And so, it's, so when this brokenness is all around us, sometimes it seems very difficult. Number three is our flesh. And this is, of course, our sin nature and, and then our, our body itself. So we got this soulish, sinful nature that's part of us. And then we have our physical body, which is all of our circulatory and skeletal nervous systems. But then we're regenerated for the Christian, for the believer, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and a new creation begins to emerge. See, in salvation, all right, are you with me? In salvation, the old person, the sinful nature is crucified and buried. That's what salvation is. The old nature is crucified, put on a cross, and buried. It's you. It's being willing to surrender everything and death to your old nature. But here's the problem. The body is still alive, so the nervous system still functions and sometimes doesn't feel like being crucified. The old nature is dead, but the body lives. So there's an argument going on between the new person that God's created you to be and the, and the flesh and your body. Here's how Paul said it in Romans. He said, Romans 8, 12 through 13, he says, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. No obligation. For it, if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. If you will put, to, put this to death by the Spirit, by God's Spirit that lives in you. And so this is our identity. I'm going to flip the two last remaining points on your uh, message notes, and I'm going I'm to just plunge into the second one, because identity is really 
about embracing a new reality. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know what it says? It says that, therefore, we are created a new, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Everything is new. The old is gone, the new has come. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so there's something here that is a new reality that's emerging. And so I want you to think about this. The kingdom of heaven is like an amputee. Amputee, a person without a limb. With respect to all the military people, men and women who have served our country, we honor you. Many of them have lost limbs. If you're in a car accident, sometimes you lose a limb. And there's something called phantom limb syndrome. Phantom limb syndrome. And it's the the idea that you're missing part of your limb, but it still feels like it's there. And so your foot itches even though there's no foot. Or your arm hurts even though there's no arm. And the problem is that the nerve, what used to be the nerve middle, is now the nerve ending. And it's still sending messages back to the brain in the nervous system. Still sending messages, hey, I'm still here. I still think the foot's here. It's still functioning according to an old reality. It's lying to to you. It's lying to you and saying that there's there's a foot there when really there's no foot there and you can feel it. It seems real and I mean, person after person that I've counseled and talked to, if I, could, if I had a nickel every time somebody said, no, this is the truth, as I know it, I've experienced it. Phantom limb syndrome. There's a new reality that Jesus is trying to emerge in their life, but they are still stuck in their body, in the nervous system, with the old reality. And so they think certain things that will pacify them or satisfy them are still good. It's a lie. It's a lie. And the message keeps coming. And so here's the question. What's the solution then? So in the old days, they used to, uh, they used to uh, give them medication, you know, some, some kind of prescription. And they would, it would get rid of the, the feelings or the pain for a certain period of time, but it would always come back. Modern medicine realized that you've got to convince this middle nerve the nerve of the middle to understand that it's the end now. And the way you do that is by stimulating it. Stimulating it. And so sometimes you'll see some people who, uh, an amputee who has, um, they're, they're hitting their leg if they're missing part of their leg. And they're hitting it because they're stimulating the nerve endings. Convincing of the new reality. Now listen, what do we do as Christians? Excuse me. What do we do as Christians to reinforce the new reality? Think to yourself for a second. You have to do things like prayer, reading the scripture, coming to church. You're doing it right now. You're coming to church, reinforcing a new reality. Now, do you have to do any of those things to be be the new person God has created you to be? Actually, Actually, no. But the more you pray and have a conversation with God, you will reinforce the new reality instead of the old one. 
If you, all you want to do is fill your head with movies and, and trash and cultural stuff that's, that's garbage and you, you just get a little tiny bit of Jesus every Sunday, well, that's what you'll have. But to reinforce the new reality, that's, that's why we, we do these things. And so, and, and the new reality with Jesus is so much better because there's something that's happening. We're, we're adjusting our lives to reflect the beliefs that we have. This, the second point there that we skipped is identity is about understanding our worth. Psalm 139 says, says that God knew you even before you were born. He saw your, his eyes saw your unformed body. And so understanding how much God loves you is the starting point for this identity. The kingdom of heaven, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a beanie baby. Do you guys remember beanie babies? Oh my goodness, I was looking it up this week and you can still, I mean there are still beanie babies for sale for like two, three thousand dollars. It's ridiculous, right? So the question is, what's a beanie baby worth, right? It's uh, 25 cents of raw material. Right, like like if retail, it was five ninety five. It's got some beans and some material. What is it actually worth? What is it actually worth? Wrong question. What is it actually worth? Wrong question. Who should we ask? That's the right question. Ask God what you're worth. Don't listen to other people. If we ask the biologist what we're worth, about a buck thirty nine in carbon and water. If we ask the culture what we're worth, it depends on what you drive, what kind of job you have, what your career is, how, how everything's working right now. Who, you, who are you going to ask about who you are? You're going to ask your friends? You're going to ask your parents? You have to believe, we have to be humble enough to surrender to the authority of Jesus Christ himself, like the faith of the centurion, that he, we are who he says we are. Whatever he says, that's what we believe. We know who we are and we know who he is. And we're simply adjusting our beliefs to line up with our new identity. And that, my friends, is real change. Aligning your beliefs with the identity that God put inside of you as a new believer, your identity. So here's, remember the five levels of change, right? Here's how it's supposed to work. You settle who you are in Jesus, your identity, it's secure. And what happens when when your identity is secure is you really start believing all the right things. And as you believe all the right things, you start to develop skills that come from believing all the right things, capabilities to do what you've been called to do. And finally, you're behaving in a way that is a byproduct of who God says you are. And finally, in environments, you are not being influenced by any environment because everywhere you go, you influence the environment around you because you're a child of God. You're a son. You're a daughter. You know exactly who you are. That's how it works. That's how Christ does it. Romans 8, 15 through 17, this resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are, father and children. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to bow your head and I want you to let the Holy Spirit speak to you now about who you are. I want you to just listen. 
Are you stuck in a cycle that keeps reinforcing all the, the old scripts that you've been handed? Are you stuck in a belief system and it's focused all on behaviors and trying to do the right thing and you're sick and tired of failing? I want to tell you there's good news today. Jesus Christ himself came to save you from that cycle. And there's two kinds of people in the room listening to me. There's one kind of person that's saying, wow, I never, I didn't really understand that this is what a relationship with God is like or, a, or really about. Like I, I, can, I can believe what he says about me and I can trust it. And this is one of the first times that's really the lights going on in your heart and your mind. And I want to tell you, I want to invite you to join our community of life. Jesus wants to change your life. He wants to give you a rich life, full. Starts with who you are. And then there's a second type of person here who is, you've been a, you've called yourself a Christian for a long time, but you've been living in the cycle, this, this cycle of behavior modification and wrestling and trying to be holy when in reality the solution is just getting Jesus closer. The reality is Jesus just wants to have permission to invade your soul and your heart that there's a surrender and a humility you need to respond to here today and an authority that you need to give him where you're willing to just give it all up. And you may be coming to this moment and saying, I've made a mess of my life. My life's overwhelming and, I, and, I, and I've believed what people have said about me and I, it, it needs to change. I need to change. But it needs to start way down deep on the inside. So if that's you, if they did one of those things describe you, I'm going to ask you, just in this moment, with nobody looking around, just to say, yes, pastor, that's me. Please pray for me right now. This is me. I'm, 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 I, need a, I need a revelation, and I need to be rescued by Jesus himself. Come on, shoot your hand up in the air right now, if that's you. Yep, don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Humility, right? Humility is what's required to say, yep, that's me. Who else? Who else? So good. Don't wrestle, just surrender. Don't wrestle, just yield. Anybody else? So good. So good for you to decide to follow him, to allow him to lead. So I'm going to pray over you. And I'm going to ask the prayer team to just get up right now and come to the front right now. Prayer team, would you just get up and Come right down to the front. Yeah, stand right here in front of me. It's okay. Anybody else? I need, I, I'm going to need some more men to come up. Yeah, some more, more of you guys come up and pray for some, some guys who are coming. So look at me. Look at me now. <laughs> I want you to pray. We're going to pray together, and then I want you to come and stand in front of one of these folks, I'm, and then I'm going to dismiss you, right? Um, if you need prayer, and, and listen to me, this is very hard to conquer. Your identity, the, the identity process, we're going to keep talking about it next week, but the identity process, changing, understanding that God has changed your identity, right? This, this process 
can be very difficult. You need friends and you need people to walk with you and you need people alongside you. You need people praying for you because God will speak to them and speak into your life when you can't hear it. And so I want to challenge every one of you that raised your hands just to stand up right now and come down front and, and pray with somebody, all right? I just, let's just take a moment, and I want you to pray with people. I don't normally do this, but I think it's a big deal. So stand up, everybody together, stand up. And those of you who raise your hands, if you didn't raise your hand, but you know you need prayer, come on down right here, right now. Don't hesitate. Just go. Move. Move. Right now. Move all the way down. If you raised your hand, come down front. Humility. Authority. Yep. Anybody else? Anybody else? All right, as they're coming, let's, let's just begin to pray. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for what you've done. In our lives, you are changing us. You are, you are changing our mind. You are changing our thoughts. You are transforming us. And Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would give every person who raised their hand, and even those who didn't, Lord, the grace that they need right now. Lord, forgive us for doing our own thing, making a mess of, of, of ourselves. Forgive us for believing in ourselves or believing in others rather than believing in you. Lord Jesus, would you come and rescue us and transform us, change our identity so that we'll believe what you say, so that we can know who we are. We love you. We thank you for this, and we receive it now. In your name we pray. Amen.